All right, guys, we're now at week three of this mini series, stories that I think really should have been in the book or the movie Black Hawk Down, but they didn't make it. Today, I get a chance to catch up with an old friend, and you will quickly hear from this episode how close Kurt Smith and I are. We spent a lot of time together working in the same unit, serving multiple times together in different combat zones, but Kurt helped me keep my sanity while I'm in Somalia. And I learned something from this episode 30 years after the battle that I didn't even know. So I am super excited to introduce you to my guest on this episode of Unbeatable, my buddy, Kurt Smith. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Before we get into the interview with Kurt, I want to remind you that it's the Solomon Foundation that made it possible for me to do this episode. These guys are helping the local church grow and they will help you get an excellent return while making an eternal impact. If you want to know more about the Solomon Foundation, go check them out at thesolomonfoundation.org. Now I get into my conversation with my buddy, Kurt Smith. Kurt, I haven't seen you in a long time, buddy. Thank you for agreeing to be on this episode of Unbeatable with me. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. We are right in the middle of a mini series. Um, The podcast has been around for about two years, but for the last two weeks, we've been telling stories about uh, events from Somalia that I think should be in the book or the movie Black Hawk Down, but are not. And today I get a chance to learn a little bit from you because there's a part of this story literally 30 years later that I've never heard. So um, I want to know what happened inside the building when you guys were taking it down. We'll get to that part of the story in just a few. Um, But man, you and I have had a lot of time together when we were both in the army and serving in special operations and it's good to catch up with somebody who's kind of like an old friend to me, man. No, I'm glad to be here. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to the chat as well. And, and I'm, I'm going to learn something, I'm sure. And, and uh, some memories will be will come back to the surface, too. So, yeah, it's good. Yeah, let's just go down memory lane, man. You and I first started working. This feels like 100 years ago now. Mm-hmm. But we first started, not only did we work together, but we actually were neighbors because we were both uh, sergeants in the Ranger Regiment living in the barracks across the hall from one another, which, good gracious, man, this must have been like 1990, 1991, 92, is when we first started working together in the reconnaissance detachment of the Ranger Regiment. Um, you came there from where, where were you? So I was in, you I was in third Ranger battalion and I, I tried out, I came over with the Mark Colazos. Remember him? Yeah. And, of course. Uh, so uh, yeah, I actually moved in there the night that the air war started for a uh, desert storm. And, uh, Oh, you did. Yeah. So I, I was yeah. a duffel bag drag over from uh, third range of time, which is you know, a couple buildings away. And I remember yeah. listening to the start of the air war and desert storm. I was up in Delanigo. We were doing a training mission. I had the satellite radio and they were kind of giving us a play by play of the targets that we were, we were destroying right. over the, over the satellite uh, yeah. network. And I was listening to the whole air war go down. 
sitting on the side of a mountain in, in yeah. Dahlonega. Yeah. And we were all boo-boo-lipped because we didn't get invited. Yes, of course. All of us wanted to be over there before this thing. None of us knew that it was going to be four or five months later right. before the actual ground fight started. Right. But, um, man, I mention you by name with to a lot of people. I don't know if this ever gets back to you. It's always in good context. So I don't know if anybody's ever said, man, Jeff talked about you, Kurt. Um, but I mentioned your name to a lot of people. It has come up a couple times. That, um, uh, you know, General LaCamera said, hey, you know, Jeff Struger. Yeah, you're all over his book. Uh, I know that's <laughs> you are. True, yep. But, uh, you know, I think I mentioned one or two places. But uh, yeah, no, I didn't know that, uh, you know, I'm living rent free in your head. <laughs> you are. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of times in our, you know, when we cross paths together that you left a really big impact on me. And I don't think I've said it to your face uh, all of those times. Uh, so, man, part of this interview for me today is just a chance to catch back up with an old friend. But the other part of it is for me to say thank you because you left a big impact on me as a man, not just as a warrior. Um, a couple of times you did. That's uh, that's very humbling because, uh, of course, I hold you in uh, extremely high regard. So I, it, uh, it's very humbling to, to hear that from you. Well, one of those times you and I were sitting on an MRE box, I think, in Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, you know, early in the war, talking about our families, talking about your family, talking about my family and kind of what was going on in our personal lives. And uh, I Man, I, I just cherish those moments where, where you and I were able to be friends and just forget about the war for a few minutes and hang out with yeah. each other uh, like buddies. Yeah, I do um, remember that. I think it was 2004 and I was not, there was a, I think it was about March or April of 2004 and something yeah. had, that was not awesome had happened and <laughs> it was helpful to, to hear your perspective on things. And Perhaps the biggest influence you had on my life, you had and never and, and you didn't know it at the time. I, I've tried to tell you that since then. Um, but this was right after you came back from Christmas block leave in the reconnaissance detachment. And you came back a very different guy than uh -huh. you were two weeks before you left for block leave. And I think you and I've had that story mm -hmm. before. This is the story I mentioned in the book. But wow, man, you were so different that it re it really, really impacted me. And honestly, it embarrassed me a little bit just watching the way that you were living out this brand new faith of yours. And God really used that moment to challenge me about the way that I was living. Well, I, again, that's it's humbling to, to hear that, um, you know, my, my faith has had highs and lows, you know, all, all throughout my life. Uh, that was definitely a high point, but I'm glad yeah. that uh, some of that was able to rub off and stick on you. So for this one, I'll just give the listeners kind of the Reader's Digest version of this story. You and I are right across the hall from each other. We're living in the barracks. We were working on literally in the same building on the same floor, just the opposite end of the building. Uh, where our team rooms were. And so we were around each other every day, all day long. And when we got off work, still around each other. And then I saw you come back from a two-week vacation at home over Christmas, a very, very different guy. And your words started to sound different. Your actions started to sound different. And after you left the team room, some of my team buddies started talking bad about Kurt Smith, like this change that was going on in him. And 
you weren't in the room at the time, but this is a moment that I am ashamed to admit out loud, but it, it was really important for my future and for my faith. After you left, guys started talking bad about you, and I really didn't want to say this, but I just interrupted the conversation, and I was like, hey, you guys, I share Kurt's faith, and this is what embarrasses me, Kurt. Everybody in the room said, wait, what? You and him have the same faith? And this is the really embarrassing part. Jeff, I would have never known that you share Kurt's faith. And I basically Mm -hmm. said, shut up. You guys need to stop talking about him behind his back and stop talking about his faith because I share his faith. And I am embarrassed to this day at their response. Jeff, I would have never known Mm -hmm. because of the way that you live that you shared Kurt's faith. And God used that moment to really punch me in the gut. And I needed that gut punch. Yeah, well, we've all had those moments, I I think. Uh, I I don't know anybody who has, and I certainly have have had similar, uh, um, you know, punches in the in the in the nards like that. So (laughs) you understand. Um, I'm going to, what we're doing now is the highlight reel. So I'm going to fast forward. You literally move on to bigger and better things when you leave the Ranger Regiment, but I stick around. Um, and I basically do the opposite. I leave recon and go over to third Ranger battalion. And the next time you and I spend some quality time together, and I'm putting quality time in air quotes for everybody who's driving, um, is sitting in an airfield, uh, sitting in a hangar on an airfield in Mogadishu, Somalia, fighting off endless days and weeks sometimes Mm -hmm. of boredom while we're in Somalia together. So I'm going to pitch this part of it to you. Where were you at? What were you doing when we all kind of came together in your neck of the woods and started the spin up for Somalia? Well, um, you know, from, from the, from the regimental reconnaissance detachment, you know, I went and tried out for, for Delta and I, I didn't think that, you know, I had a, I was 22 years old when I when I actually went to selection. I, I had no um, expectation that I was going to get picked up, and it was a surprise uh-huh. to me when I did. And you know, I, I uh, went to operator training course that was six uh, months long. Spent about uh-huh. eight months in squadron, and then we started doing the uh, the train up for some for Somalia. So I, I don't know if if we crossed paths at any time during that, but I don't I don't know. That was probably two or three weeks. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, I think the the first time I saw you was when we were kind of falling in on your compound, getting ready to load aircraft and getting ready to head off to Somalia together. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of like a, a, you know, getting a getting a chance to hang out with an old friend. Yeah. Uh, together. And uh, we're in different units, but in the mm-hmm. same task force, in the same right. hangar. And for the listeners, I wish you could see just how miserable this airplane hangar was right the yeah. doors are broken we're on the airfield literally just a hundred yards from the runway aircraft landing with the with the engines at full throttle all day and all night long and there's several hundred of us living in a metal box in the middle of africa in the okay. middle of the summer where it is just brutally hot mm-hmm. and i link up with my old buddy kurt and yeah. you and i just start to pass the time together yeah, uh, you know, it, it cots, you know, right next to each other. Green, your, green army cots, three feet away from each right. other. Yeah, and and uh, you know, to, trying to set up little sandbag uh, abutments to, to you know to uh, compartmentalize 
the uh, fragments from mortar attacks. And yeah, it was, uh, and, and, you know, for the whole time that we were there, like six weeks or so, we only did like seven missions. So, yeah. you know, on average, once a week, the rest of the time you're twiddling your thumbs, doing some signature flights, you know, getting on there and getting a flight around the city. But, you know, being being as young and, and foolish as we were, we're literally hanging out there, you know, praying for war. Right. Uh, yeah. In air quotes again. So, um, yeah, no, that was uh, it was, you know, a little bit of range time, do some you know, first aid training, play some yeah. volleyball, get some, uh, uh, some good tan, you know, on my, uh, Teva sandals. That's right. And, yeah. and, uh, yeah. And wait for the next mission. I, I want, I want to make sure the, the listeners understand this, the, you know, when you, when you read the book or when you, when you watch the movie war books, war movies, they only talk about the action, mm-hmm. but ask anybody who's ever been there. Um, the famous quote is war is moments of sheer terror punctuated by weeks or sometimes months of in, of insane boredom. Yes. And that was definitely the case in Somalia, right? Definitely. I mean, I, like, but, so, but, you know, one of the things that I have a reputation for back in Sea Squadron was I'd carry this fly swatter around and, and I would literally count how many flies. Yes, you know, I love it. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that, that was something like I was okay. Every, before every meal, I'm going to go through, I'm going to kill 500 flies. And that was not difficult to do. Um, but yeah, that was a good time. Do, do you know, no kidding. My, I still tell my family about you and I having fly killing competitions in the dining facility, the big yeah. tent out there, right, um, right before mealtime, trying to see how many flies you can actually kill in one swap. Right. There were so many flies. Right. I, we were counting what's the record you could kill in one yeah. swat. And I still remember my record. I've told my children this and they look at me like there's no way possible you killed that many flies with it. one swat of a fly swatter. 17 flies oh, in yeah, one you, swat. Yeah, you uh, you would crush me. But no, you were you were you were laying waste to those 500 flies. Yeah. And, and there were flies so thick that, I mean, honestly, it took you about 15 minutes to kill oh, 500. of yeah, them. You, and you walk away and there's 5000 more right. waiting for you. That's right. The, yeah. the key was to get it right underneath where the Kool-Aid dispenser came out. That's where. <laughs> yeah, all of that time. sugar water. Yeah. Boom. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, those are good times right there, man. <laughs> we spent some time just hanging out on your cot or on my cot in that hangar, talking about our our families, talking about life, mm-hmm. not just talking about the unit, the mission, yeah. you know, what's coming down the pipe, but just hanging out and being buds and Kurt, if it wasn't for you, I would have lost my mind about a dozen times in Somalia. Um, let's get into the fight because really people right now are like, okay, these two bros, yeah. they got a bromance going on. Um, really what they want to hear is about the fight. So you go into the target on little birds. I roll into the target on Humvees and there's a part of this fight 30 years later that I've really never heard mm. Um, because I just keep getting a lot of the Rangers that tell me their, their role yeah. in it. But for the listener, will you just kind of give them the account of what happens from the time that the little birds kind of hit the target to the time that, uh, we meet up on the city streets. And I think we met up on the street, city streets, maybe early on or, uh, middle of this fight. Yeah. So the, um, you know, so the, Delta contingent or whatever, the main effort, so to speak, was on four little birds. And I was on the fourth one and each one had four assaulters on us. So there were 16 of us 
we're supposed to go in, you know, they're, they look at the imagery and they say, hey, you're going to land in these areas. And of course, the first aircraft that start going in there started pulling up all this, uh, yeah. you know, the just getting dusted out. So we ended up, our, my team's F team, uh, two or three blocks down the road is where they ended up putting us down. And I remember I'm, I'm coming in on the, uh, I'm sitting, I was on the front side of the, of the pod uh-huh. there on the, uh, on the left side, I'm holding the fast rope in my hand. I'm, I'm looking down, trying to see the, yeah. the ground and all the, I can't see the ground. All I see is brown out it's and brown, all of a sudden yeah, brown out. Hit the ground. And I was like, holy crap. Okay. So I throw the, uh, the fast rope in the back, grab my weapon and, and we assaulted into the first building and just kind of made our way down, uh, to the target building. By that time, the assault was in, in progress. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there was never a whole, well, I don't want to say never. I know of, I don't know of any, um, times where they were killing bad guys inside buildings. And, and, and yeah. I think for the most part, what we saw was, Okay, they were in the buildings and they're like, okay, the gig's up. These these guys wearing black Kevlar are coming in. We're just going to throw our weapons out the window and just kind of give up and pretend like we're supposed to be here. So yeah. we, we um, F team came in, um, uh, joined the assault in progress, ended up out onto the rooftop. And that's where I kind of saw, all right, things are starting to go bad. And, uh-huh. um, you know, lots of firing out. Uh, outside, you know, there was maybe one or two other missions where there were, you know, a, a significant amount of, of firings. But this one was like, okay, the volume of of the uh, of the firing was quite a bit. And I saw, you know, Rangers out there setting up blocking positions. I saw them trying to police up fast ropes that they had that yeah. they had, uh, um, you know, uh, landed in. And so we're like, okay, well, we've got our detainees. We end up going back down to the bottom of the. Uh, the target building, which was, I don't know, four, three or four or five uh-huh. stories or whatever. And, um, and started kind of consolidating, getting ready to move these detainees, um, to the vehicles, to the right. vehicles. That's right. And so lots of firing outside. I remember, uh, our troops, our major comes in, um, his name is, uh, Ben free. He comes in, he's like, woo, woo, like having a good time or whatever. And I was like, not really thinking this was a good time. I turned to one of my fellow OTC mates, his name is Steve Cash. And, and he's like, this is some shite. And I'm like, yeah. And, and, and then I saw one Ranger, you know, holding a pressure dressing up to his neck. Uh You know, it was, it it was uh, blood or red with blood. So that, that was the first casualty I saw. I, I know that some stuff had happened before that outside, but we were getting ready at that point to, basically offload our detainees off to the Rangers. And then of course we got the word that a helicopter had, had, had crashed and we're like, okay, where, what, where, where's the helicopter? And we pointed somewhere that way, which, you know, back, which is not good. That's not a good uh, mission to go on somewhere that way. Right. Um, in the city streets, did you, you didn't have a chance to see the bird go down. You weren't on the rooftop at that. Well, if it was, I was not aware of, of, Uh I think I was probably coming back down when the, when it went, uh, did we probably would have heard about it before, but when I heard that there, a helicopter had been crashed, we were already back downstairs, um, out in the courtyard, you know, kind of consolidating to move out. Yeah, I try to tell people just how impressive, just how efficient your unit was 
not just in this target, but all of the targets that we hit, that first target, you know, um, when we hit Radio Mogadishu or the Russian compound or when we pulled Osmanato out of his uh, target, um, I try to explain to everybody just how fast and how efficient your unit is. But I think most people, their eyes glaze over and they don't get a really good yeah. perspective of it. Um, because if you've never had a chance to see it uh, firsthand, it's really, really hard to understand just how incredibly uh, well, uh, well organized you guys are and how well you work with one another. Yeah. I mean, that just comes down to, to repetition. I mean, we have so many repetitions of doing, you know, clearing rooms or, or whatever that literally how, how I would describe it is you, when you've done that many repetitions with that small of a group of people, you literally can just read, you know, how each mind. other thinks, right? That's right. And, yeah. and there's really not much that needs to be said, you, you know, a, a glance or a something like that. You just kind of intuitively understand exactly what, you know, it's kind of the, this hive group think of of, uh, of going through the building and clearing it with with very, very little. It's it's how battle drills are supposed to be. Right. Sure. Yeah. Um, except done at the at the highest level, because, you know, the, all the training distractions are are uh, are removed and uh, and you just add it you know very sharp into a to a sharp edge and, and to the listener out there man the stuff that you see in the movies they don't even come close yeah. to just how effective just how incredible just how talented you and those guys are in the city streets and of course i'm never going to give away national secrets but man what i saw just watching you guys in training what i saw over in somalia i was like I don't know anybody on the planet in history that can pull off what you guys are pulling off right now. Um, it was that impressive. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to take, I mean, it's certainly not me and, and it's not just the units that was impressive. I mean, the whole task force, I mean, you remember general Garrison, Yeah. we, when we first uh, landed there in Mogadishu, he was like, Hey, this is this, this task force has been assembled right here. The aviators, the rangers, uh -huh. the, the tier one organization. He, he said, this is the most capable, uh, uh, you know, organization that's ever been assembled on the face of the earth. And I, at that point in 1993, that, that was definitely so like we're, we, we were, we were given mission impossible to go yeah. pull a guy out of a hot, uh, uh, a, a hostile city and and there was no other organization that could have ever been close to to accomplishing that up until then i'm gonna i want to camp on that quote for just a second because i remember we got off of the aircraft we're all kind of filing into that airplane hangar and garrison gathers us around and makes that statement and i thought man look this is just a commander yeah. trying to pump right. us up getting ready for this i'm looking around the room and i'm like everybody in this room is talented sure mm -hmm. but i i've come to believe yeah. that garrison's statement was absolutely yes. true i just didn't recognize it when he was saying it it was after the fight was over with that yeah. i was like i think he was right yes. yeah yeah I, I i believe the same thing i didn't i was like okay he's just pumping us off but but and because all commanders are going to say you're the best right yeah this is the um, best that's ever lived right, right. But uh, now it's very clear to me in retrospect that 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 was a true story. Right after the movie Black Hawk Down came out, I was doing an international I did a, uh, an international news broadcast and it it started off pretty friendly. But at some point, the attitude of the reporter 
changed and it started to become pretty hostile. And then they started digging into my shorts. It was just me and this international news crew. Mm -hmm. And they started asking me about how this talented of a force with all of our training and all of our equipment, with you guys and everything else that we had, how could you, I'm putting air quotes, lose this bad? How could you mess this up this bad? And man, I started to get so furious during this interview. Um, I realized that these guys that are interviewing me don't have a bit of experience, mm-hmm. no combat. So nothing that I say next is going to make sense to them. But then I just kind of reminded them, listen, if you look at the map, and I just use this term, if you look at the map, the number of us that were in the streets, the number of Somalis that we were fighting against, mm-hmm. the number of us that survived and the number of the Somalis that died, I don't know any force, and and now I'm kind of hearkening back to General Garrison's statement, I don't know any force ever assembled that will walk away from that scenario with a different, with with that kind of math or better. Every every other force that's ever been assembled, it's going to be much worse than that. You can call it a failure if you want, but tactically, we did exactly what we were supposed to do. It just was very bloody to do it. Right. No, 100%. Like, they're... they're, uh mistaking the strategic loss from the tactical success. Yeah. So when you, when you talk about all the failures of Operation Restore Hope and then Unisom 2 and all of those objectives that they were trying to meet, and then you look at the what we were asked to do and what we accomplished, you know, we, we captured all three guys that we were sent there to, right. to, uh, to pull off the target that day. And yeah, there, we got a bloody nose out of it. In record time, because we knew we're rolling into the Bacara market. We knew there was going to be a lot of guns, didn't know how many, Mm -hmm. but we did it basically in record time. You just happen to have many, multiple Blackhawks starting to get shot down before we actually get all the way off the target. Um, At this point in the fight, I have already left the target building. I'm taking Todd Blackburn back, come under a massive ambush. Dominic Pillow's killed, vehicles Mm -hmm. shot to pieces. And I start to try to roll out to the city streets a few minutes later with a couple of guys from your unit Mm -hmm. on the Humvees with me. And we're trying to get to the Durant crash site and again, come under intense Mm -hmm. gunfire ambush and don't actually make it all the way to the crash site before we link up with a part of the assault force that's coming back with Danny McKnight. Would you talk through what happens after the, um, helicopter gets shot down you're still on target you still got the detainees but we haven't flexed to the next part so so what what happens with you next after cliff wolcott goes down so we get the word that there's been a a helicopter crash and um and And by the way somewhere that way we don't know where we don't know how far just that direction right because i mean nowadays it's just intuitive i mean most guys in the army think well i have a grg right i have a little an overhead imagery with some graphics on it that didn't exist we invented that stuff back in 1993. i I had the only satellite map in the entire uh task force it was on the the dash of my humvee and i'm trying to figure out one street from the next that has no distinguishing markings whatsoever right I, I think um, my team, I didn't have it, but my team had an overhead imagery of the target area and maybe a couple blocks around it. But you go a couple blocks, you're off the map. Yeah. Right? So you're, yeah. you're literally, literally off the map. Nothing. That's right. And of course, uh, you know, we didn't even have graphics on it at that point. So, the, you know, the grid reference graphic, it was just a graphic yeah. or, or just a, a, just an imagery. There was no grid. There was no, no, you know, no other graphics on it. So. 
Um, no, we ended up, okay, it's that way. And so I'm like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm F4 on the team, the, you know, the fourth guy, uh, four yeah. I see. And so I'm just, okay, I'm, I'm following my team leader and we, and a bunch of Rangers that were, you know, part of the, the blocking position uh-huh. apparatus there started moving in this green snake, you know, uh, what was it? It must've been, uh, uh, eastward. And then yeah. we turn north towards the target again. I don't know what would the impetus of that turn. I think it was a call from the uh, C two aircraft that got to us. We turned towards the uh, target. You know, we there was uh, incoming fire, but not uh, super effective. But once we turned north, it was on. And maybe two or three blocks north of that, unbeknownst to me, was the crash around uh, down an alleyway. Um, and so we fought forward a couple, uh, blocks and ended up move just like, okay, we're taking casualties now. Uh, yeah. Earl Fillmore was killed, uh, right, right in front of me. Um, uh, took one, right. Was he on your team? He was not, he was, in fact, he was in a different troop, but I mean, yeah. we were just all, you know, kind of mixed in together. Um, so I, I, I mean, I watched him drop. I watched, uh, Mike Mosier get hit. He yeah. got hit yeah. through the, uh, the forearm there. Um, and they're like, okay, we're getting inside. And, um, so we all kind of take cover. And at that point we're kind of fixed, um, unable to maneuver, uh, and, um, you know, kind of return fire cause we were, we had very few firing ports. So yeah. we're using, um, my position, captain Steele ended up in my position. Um, well, he was, he kind of wanted to hang out outside where he could see, that's when um, Jim Lechner got hit. Yeah, we, right. we pulled him inside. I, I looked down at him. He was just the his most leg was mangled, right? That I'd ever heard in yeah. my life. Um, really, really affected me. Um, and it looked like you know somebody just turned on a garden hose and sprinkled blood on the ground as they were as they were pulling him in. I was like, okay, yeah, you know, I don't. This want is bad, right? That's right. And so lots of Rangers getting pulled in there. We're we're putting them back there. I think. Um, I think Kurt Schmidt was there or yeah. Bart Bullock was there. He was uh-huh. one of our medics. He was treating those guys. Um, and then finally, Hey, we're telling, actually I'm out of sequence here. We were telling, uh, Captain Steele, Hey, you need to get inside. You need to get inside. Right. He gets inside yeah. and starts coming. And, uh, Jim Lackner was right uh, behind him. And that's when he got hit. Um, we were, you know, doing our best to, to, you know, provide covering fire for that or suppressive fire. But uh. yeah, this is part of the conversation that I was really looking forward to because the, the part that you're telling me now, Kurt, I, I, I didn't know. And man, this is 30 yeah. years later. You yeah. and I have been together many, many times yeah. since then. And we've just never had this. Con- I feel stupid for never having this conversation with you. I haven't told this story in a decade or two. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for telling it yeah. uh, to our audience. Um, I, I want to, make sure that the listeners understand this because I try to explain what you just said to, to people and those that are not in the military, even to be honest, those that have been in the military, but have never really been in an intense gunfight. When you just use the phrase, it was on, I know exactly mm-hmm. what those words mean, but the truth is there's very few guys on the planet that know exactly what those words yeah. mean. So I, I describe for audiences, look, I'm driving down the road, we're getting shot at, but I'm not that worried about gunfire. And everybody's looking at me like, are you stupid because you're getting shot at? Yeah. And I tell them, look, man, I've been shot at. I know how close they are. I can hear by the round going over my head how accurate it is. Wait a second. I turn the corner. It's on. Mm-hmm. 
And that's when I'm trying to explain to people, what does that look like? And they're still struggling with, wait, I need to go back. You're getting shot at as Kurt, you and you, and this green snake is moving down the streets, but it's not that big of a deal because it's not that effective of gunfire. And I'm not sure uh, how many people that are listening right now will get this, but can you, I can describe it, but can you describe for everybody the difference between, okay, that one's far enough over our head. I don't need to worry about, all right, that one is close and we need to start uh, tightening up a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, um, I may be a minority on this, but like, I don't, okay. To, to hear a gunshot when you're downrange, it's it sounds like a, a like this all you're hearing is a sonic crack, right? Right. It sounds like yeah. you know like a like that. It's like a snapping sound, and after the snapping sound, you'll you might hear the report of the rifle. Right. It would be like boom, boom, and you're hearing this, of course, rapidly. So when I hear that, especially when I got earplugs in, I'm not really tracking. Okay, was it close or was it far? I don't know. Nobody's getting hit around me. Right. That's not effective. So that's uh, kind of when you know it's more if if you see the strike of the round in the ground in the walls beside you, now you know, okay, that it's becoming definitely more effective. Or of course, when dudes start dropping. But like if a round goes next to my ear or it's five feet away, I'm not going to know the difference from that, especially wearing earplugs. I was just having this very conversation two weeks ago with Matt Eversman, and we were talking about when I went up to get to Mike Steele's position mm-hmm. and tried to figure out where is Todd Blackburn. I got to get him. I got to get him on the Humvees and get him out. And his position is under fire, but it's far enough over our heads. And I don't have ear pro in that everybody around them keeps ducking when the rounds mm-hmm. go over their head. And I was I, I couldn't help myself. I started laughing out loud. First, do you realize how ridiculous yeah, you it's look? Too late. if you're ducking, yeah. the round is already going to hit that's you right. if it was going to hit you. But yeah. secondly, that's far enough over your head that it's not really decisive. And then a couple of rounds start to hit the wall and the dirt in front of you. Okay, that's close. Yeah. Now you want to get your head down. Yeah. Um, because the next one might take your head off. Yeah, that's right. Um, and and it was it's hard to explain. I'm laughing about it now yeah. uh, because it was just kind of comical. If you're ducking, the round has already gone over your head. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you're hearing the sonic boom, yeah. the mini sonic uh, you know, signature after it's already passed over. Yeah. If you're ducking because you heard it, it's too late. That's right. Um, but when you turn the corner and start to head north towards the crash site, now yeah. it's on. Can you describe the difference between we're getting shot at now it's on? What's the difference? For the listener i mean it's just uh it's the volume so it's and what i mean by that is just the the uh the intensity or the frequency of the of the rounds that are coming in so you know before it was like or something like that and then you start turning north and all of a sudden you see you know bursts of automatic fire come, and then dudes are getting hit right you you a guy gets hit in front of you you're taking things a lot more seriously now And, and you're, you know, I mean, that's the thing too, is that there was, there was this, you know, sense of arrogance that plagued us. I totally agree. Yes, I totally agree. Like, Hey, I'm big, bad Delta force guy. Like, 
you know, I'm, I'm feeling pretty invincible right now with my body armor and my high tech car 15 with the aim point at the time. And, and nobody's going to come near me because when I'm out on the range, all the targets drop and they get hit when I shoot at them. Right. Right. So, so it's just a, um, you see somebody get hit in front of you and, and, oh, that's somebody that, you know, or, oh, that is somebody that you admired and respect in the assault yeah, troop. You looked up to him somebody a lot, like, right? that guy was invincible to me and he just got, you know, he, his life is gone in an instant. There's no getting it back. And you're like, no, I want to rewind. No, I, I, you know, I want to, I want to replay on that there. It's that's it. They're gone. And, um, that is, uh, that is, I I don't, I, I don't know the word for that right now. It's just, uh, shocking, uh, when you see something like that. I want to make sure the listener is hearing this. This is, priceless, honest conversation about what it's really like in war to everybody that's out there. That's, you know, kind of a generation younger than us. Mm. It is nothing like call of duty is what you and I are saying right now. Right. Um, and like you, Pella takes around in the forehead. He's dead before his body hits the floorboard. It's obvious he's dead. There's no amount of, you know, first aid that's going to get him back. Um, and all of us start to realize, uh, Oh, we're all going to die. We're all going to die in the next yeah. city block. We're not even going to make it back to the base. We're not even going to make it to the next city block because of the volume of gunfire. Mm-hmm. And man, I've been in gunfights in Iraq and Afghanistan since Panama, Desert Storm, yeah. but nothing, not even a fraction of what we saw in Somalia. It isn't even no. it isn't even the same ballpark. Yeah. And and I, I would tell you, Jeff, I, I wasn't with you on the convoy, but like I regard that you guys saw way more volume than we did. Um, I mean, you just kept going through the same ambush site. Well, okay, I, here's I just thought of this. Okay. So as we're moving east from the from the target building before uh-huh. we had turned north somebody's convoy it was yours or no it wasn't yours that it was, was mcknight's yours. convoy yep okay they passed from north to south right in front of us okay, right important and you know before whenever i'd see these guys they're like oh yeah where's the targets let yeah. me freaking hammer some of big big bad dudes, dudes ready to kill some down people. in the chair like this. <laughs> of course and of that, course they are that had an effect on me i was like 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 because i had at that point i had no idea what they had gone through they they might have gone through all kinds of stuff before that but it, it was obvious that those guys no longer were the you know the brave guys that they were yeah. before of course they're still brave but like they're you know uh that the arrogant they had ditched the arrogance we sure. had not done that yet and um we were about to find out ourselves uh to one degree or the other i've had countless people ask me in a q a session after i talked uh didn't it seem it seems pretty arrogant what you guys were doing over there and i said to be honest america needs a force with a degree of yeah. arrogance yeah. what you and i didn't know is just how many Somalis, just how many guns, just how many RPGs. And that would have taken the arrogance right out of me or you before the first, uh, you know, person hit the target. If I would have known the numbers, but nobody could give us an accurate count of the numbers. It wasn't until the fight was over that we started to get an idea of the numbers. Yeah. But the arrogance is it's not a bad thing until it becomes until it causes you to make some tactical mistakes. And I think arrogance can do that. 
Yeah, when you, the, the arrogance is good until you can't adapt from the arrogance, yeah. and, and and then it starts to kill you. But um, you know, it's it's not only that; it's the it's what Panama. We were fighting the PDF, right? And they gave up, literally locked themselves in their own handcuffs and turned themselves into me on a hillside. And and they were uniformed. Yeah, right? these guys were not. This was what, right. this is one of the first ones. I think what was Bosnia was after this. I mean, okay, it's. I mean, this was the basically the start of the banana wars where yeah. where the um, they learned from, you know, previous engagements with not only us, but also with other U.N. forces that were there from Restore Hope and, and, and Unisom too that, you know, we can we can uh, exploit the rules of engagement. Yeah. And, Ditch the uniform, use right. human shields, give AK-47s right. to kids. We'll do it all. That's right. Yep. So, um, and I don't have to worry about collateral damage. You know, if I just stick my rifle around a corner and spray, I don't care where those are going to hit. I'm, right. I'm not going to be held responsible for that. So, um, that the, the warfare was a lot different than, you know, the, the Panama and the desert storm before that, the warfare was completely different. I even said that to the, my squad the day that we got off the C5 and got greeted by a mortar attack on the operations center. And I said, listen, man, in Panama, they surrendered. In Iraq, they surrendered by the tens of thousands, literally. And in Somalia, we get off the airplane and they greet us with mortar fire. This is an enemy that's going to, I said it out loud to yeah. my squad. This is an enemy that's going to fight. Finally, we found an enemy that's going to yeah. fight back. I just had no idea how how uh, tenacious they would be. Yeah, and 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 not only that. So the enemy is tenacious, and the force is hesitant to respond to that, right? Because I, I remember talking to you about this, um, you know, weeks before that. We were talking about actions at the blocking position. Yeah, and we we're yeah. and I was like, Jeff, you you got to set up what the the signs and then the cones and then, and then the, the non-lethal the force wire. before I can get right. to the lethal force. That's yeah. right. and, and then I said, you got to take the decision making out of it. And like, Hey, when they cross this line, you shoot, don't, no matter yeah. what you shoot. And, and remember you were saying one of your privates was, and you told one of your privates this, when he crossed that line, you shoot. And he's like, no way, sir. And I'm not shooting until you tell me to. And, and, and that was, that was the way it was done, right? Because like it was like the the rules of engagement were if he didn't have a gun, you can't shoot him, right? Because that was the mother of all determining of whether the guy was enemy or not. I will never forget that very painful rules of engagement briefing that you and I yeah. sat through up in the conference room for what seemed like six hours right. asking question after yeah. question about what can I do. And here's what I said to my men. After this is over with, my team leaders are waiting for me. All the rest of my guys are asleep. And my team leaders say, well, what's the deal, Sergeant? What's what's the rules? And I said, here's the rule. You do what I tell you to do. Your fire team does what you do. And if there's mm -hmm. any problems or any questions, I'll get court-martialed for it. <laughs> Don't worry about I'm not. I'm not even going to try to explain yeah. what I just went through in that ridiculous right. rules of engagement briefing. Right. And... Um, uh, let's let's get back to the action, man. I could yeah. get off subject with you of uh, plenty of times. Okay, so now you guys have become kind of the big casualty collection point yeah. that's pretty well uh, depicted in the movie yes. Black Hawk Down. Lots of casualties. You're still not 
at the crash site no. yet. Um, and I know this term, um, you know this term, but for the listeners, you're basically combat of ineffective at this yeah. point. Can you explain what the, what that means and why to the listeners? Well, I would say you're, you're combat ineffective when you're no longer able to maneuver or do your mission. So there were so, we would collected so many casualties that we didn't even have enough guys to move them. To move the casualties. Uh, unilaterally, yeah. we needed help. Um, so, you know, there was discussions of calling in medevac. I knew that wasn't possible. Like it, it started to get dark. We had to mark our positions. We're taking our, our IR strobe lights off our gear and uh -huh. we're throwing it on top. Throwing it on the roof. We can mark our, our position. Um, there was at one point a, uh, a, 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 a MH60 Blackhawk that was sent and was dumping off ammo outside um, that, you know, guys had to run out and get. Um, uh, we, we, uh, we ended up moving one building closer, uh, -huh. uh with some drama. Um, and l we pretty much held up there. We, it was like this four way intersection again, uh, short of the crash site. There were Rangers that were still up there and there were some, yeah. there were some, uh, uh, Delta teams across the street and catty corner to it. But, um, but I mean, we were starting to try to build a defense, right. And literally, we were calling in airstrikes from little birds within 20, 25 meters, literally yeah, yeah. across the street. And yeah. we're like, okay, this is my strobe, like a catty corner across the street. Do the you see my strobe? And Don't it, shoot the strobe. Yeah, with overhead fires. Right. Yeah. No go. Right. So, right. Like, and I, and I'd seen that in, uh, in, in, uh, Panama where we got strafed by overhead yeah, right. fires and yeah. a, a guy and got some guys, other guys really seriously wounded. So, um, I, and I saw the silhouettes coming up. I was like, holy crap. And then, you know, bah, you know, mini guns yeah. right overhead with rockets. Um, but they were, they were Nat's ass. They were dead yeah. on. I've said this many times. It is the mini guns mm -hmm. in the, the little birds and the Blackhawks that carried the brunt of the fight mm -hmm. from the time that the sun went down, basically until the time that it came back up yeah. the next morning, man, the amount of of gunfire that they put on those city streets. The only reason, one of the only reasons I'm alive today is because of the mini guns yeah. on the little birds and the Blackhawks. They, they had two teams and they were literally fueling and fueling and rearm and just fueling and going, fueling and going empty on guns right. and then uh, changing out, going empty on guns and coming back for more fuel, I mean, more ammunition. Yeah. I only knew one of those guys and, and his name was Paul White. And I only knew him because we played volleyball. And, um, and he, I was like, Hey man, like, what did you see afterwards? You know, he's like, dude, I'm flying down. There'd be a whole bunch of dudes running down the street. The number one guy would hose those guys, kill a bunch. They'd scatter. And then they would get back on and the road. Collapse, and collapse the back together. And, yeah. and they were just, just slaying Stacking it all bodies all day long, all night long. Yeah. How long did you stay at the casualty collection point? When talk yeah. us through when you actually get out of the city and finally make it back to the hangar. How did that work for you? How did that go for you? You know, we went in at what fifteen thirty by yeah. I don't know uh -huh. sixteen thirty ish. We're we're at the casualty collection point after and it got dark. Combat and effective, right? Yeah. After it got dark, maybe uh, twenty hundred eight o'clock at night, we move forward. And then I don't know, maybe three in the morning, wh whenever it was that the uh, the that the uh, tenth mountain guys showed. Yeah, up. the tenth mountain showed up. So tenth mountain shows up. We load all our dead, load all our casualties. Then my team goes down 
to pry the guys out of the Blackhawk. Cause oh, it, so you took the you took the crash side apart to get I I, the I pulled out. bodies apart with a cargo strap yeah. hooked to a Humvee. Yeah. So like oh. and so they they literally we pulled them out in pieces um, to get yeah. to to get them out of there. And we we torched the aircraft on the way. Then it was okay. The all the what where there were V one fifties that were lined up kind of like strikers, uh-huh. and so. We're like, okay, where do we sit? Well, there's no more room, right? So they're like, okay, you're going to run alongside of these vehicles um, as and use them as cover. And we're like, okay. And so we're we did that for about two or three blocks, and then they just bailed. They and so literally <laughs> they hit the gas pedal. Yeah. That, so literally, what is that? Hallwadig Street, about yeah, uh-huh. right about where the Target building, the Olympic Hotel. It was okay. We're you know, uh, uh, you know, shop to shop. And at, at that point it was literally, if it moved, we were shooting it. Yeah. And, and we're, we just weren't playing at that time. Cause you know, this, this bizarre, uh, thing that we're, you know, some Somalis think that war is a spectator sport and they're all going to yeah. stand on the uh-huh. side of the road and watch that stuff with just was not working anymore because uh, right. that they ended up becoming, you know, human shields for, uh, for militia guys. So like we were, we were killing everybody on, on the way back. Um, and, and many of those guys were, were out to make trouble anyway. So we ended up, uh, you know, the Mogadishu mile, so to speak, I don't think it's a mile, but it's a, uh, it was a good PT event. Um, we ended up, they had a bunch of, uh, Humvees lined up for us. We loaded those up, still fighting. Um, we were still receiving fire and then we kind of started driving out and broke kind of out of the hostile uh, section yeah. of the city. And then we started getting friendly fire, friendly waves and stuff yeah. like that yeah. ended up at the uh, at the Pakistani stadium. Um, and you rode back on our Humvees. Yeah. Uh, the last four Humvees out of the entire city was my two and Larry Moore's and the other Humvee from. Um, another ranger squad and the whole convoy left us literally the tanks left the army personnel carriers left 10th mountain left we're driving down the street my platoon leader larry moore says hey jeff you're the last literally the last vehicle in uh, the order of movement everything behind you is bad guys and last week i just interviewed brad paulson who's riding the 50 cal private been in the army for 18 months and he says, hey, Sergeant, there's a bunch of dudes riding or running down the street chasing us. And I said, well, Brad, light them up, man. There's oh nothing but bad guys behind us. And Brad says, no, those are our guys. So I try to get the platoon leader on the radio, can't make comms. I drive up to him real quick and say, man, we got to go back to the target building. And we load as many people. I'm talking maybe a dozen guys per Humvee wow. um, in those those last two Humvees and drag them out of the city streets. And with the pedal floored, trying to drive uphill Gosh. to the Pakistani stadium, the vehicle's going about 12 miles right. an hour because of the amount of weight yeah. on it. Um, but the volume of gunfire, I will never forget. When we rolled back out about midnight 11 o'clock at night to try to get to you at the casualty collection casualty collection point the street just erupted with gunfire both sides of the street and this is tracer rounds that are going across both sides of the street like the fourth of july and i'm thinking we don't even have this much ammunition in our american ammunition supply where are all of these rpgs hand grenades and where are all of these bullets coming from 
um, because it never let up on National Street all night long. Never. There yeah. was never a law in action. And every time there was an loom round fired or something, it just got super intense for a few minutes and then never let up all night long. Literally, yeah. we would ever anybody else would have run out of ammunition right. early in the night. Um, Kurt, the one memory, though, that has stuck with me, I don't think I'll ever forget it is I'm the last vehicle out. I'm looking down National Street, getting ready to turn and head up to the Pakistani Stadium. And the sun is coming up and the street is literally glowing. Mm. Um, it almost looks like the entire street is made out of gold. Wow. And I couldn't figure out what I'm looking at and didn't make any sense to me. And then it occurred to me. And of course, everybody's still firing around me. Lots of rounds going out everywhere. And then I was like, that's brass casing. Oh, the wow. entire city street is so covered with brass casing wow. that the city itself, the street itself looks like it's made out of wow. brass or out of gold because the sunlight is reflecting off of it. And then I was trying to just do some mental math. This is a hundred thousand rounds of brass casing all over the city streets. And that's just from us, right. not from them. Right. When we talk about a fight, unlike, you know, what America has seen really since Vietnam, mm -hmm. or even, you know, a couple of the prolonged firefights in Iraq or Afghanistan, some of those just don't compare mm -hmm. to the volume yes. of gunfire in Somalia. And man, as a, you know, not just as a friend and a guy that I highly look up to, but as a warrior watching you, listening to you, talking to you after it was over with, sitting in that hangar, you know, and just uh, unloading uh, with you, man, I cannot thank you enough for what you did on the, the city streets, man. Uh, uh, you know, it, it makes me comfortable. It makes me uncomfortable when people, you know, thank me for my service or whatever. You know, I was glad to do it. I was glad to, to serve and. That was just uh, one other area that, uh, you know, looking back, I was fortunate enough to, to, to be there. I, I don't know um, how I'd think about it if I was missing body parts like some of our. Yeah, some of our, some of our buddies are. are. But, um, but uh, man, I appreciate the sentiment. Yeah, man. And um, all of the times that we passed each other in training or in combat, there has been this moment where like, OK, if Kurt is here, then no matter how bad it gets, at least I got somebody that I can unload to open up with, you know, just hang out with and and whenever it gets super boring we'll play a game of volleyball on a hot asphalt That's right. uh, you know volleyball court right. just to pass the time bro thanks for giving me a little bit of your time thanks for being part of this episode today and giving me a chance to just catch up with you yeah thanks for inviting me on had a good time all right yeah we'll catch you later all right thanks jeff wow I just learned some things in a conversation with Kurt Smith that I haven't heard before ever. I just remembered some things about Somalia that I have frankly forgot 29 years ago. Kurt, thank you for being so open. Thank you for being willing to tell your part of the story that you haven't told in a long time. And I just want to say thank you once again, Kurt, for your friendship, not just in that airplane hangar in Somalia, but many times on many, uh, in many assignments and many battlefields since then. I want to thank the guests. Uh, I also want to thank the listening audience. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being so loyal. Thank you for staying connected. If you're just finding this podcast, why don't you go ahead and subscribe? On YouTube, we do we do a video or follow us 
on your favorite podcast platform. You can also find out more information about our guests, about the episodes, about what's coming up on social media. We're pretty much everywhere on social media. Just go to your favorite social media platform and search at Unbeatable Podcast and you'll find out more information about the show. But you'll also find some pretty amazing guests like our fan of the week this week, Corey Otto. Corey, thank you for being so engaged. Thank you for staying connected with us. Thanks for following us on social media. Kurt was there for me when I was having some hard times in combat. I was there for Kurt when he was having some hard times in life and in combat. And I developed a little tool, it's totally free. It's a PDF resource for you if you're going through some hard times. If you want my Unbeatable Army Survival Guide, I'll give it to you totally free. All you need to do to get it is just simply go to unbeatablearmy.com. And while you're there, you'll get more information. I send content to you each week. So if you want that survival guide, just go over to unbeatablearmy.com. Thanks for tuning in in the middle of this mini series. Can't wait till you get a chance to hear from my next guest next week. You get a chance to hear what happened in the aircraft from one of the most amazing pilots I've ever seen, Dan Gelato. So you got to be back here next week. See you next time.